We've all got stories, don't we? Any of us that have been board members, executive directors, donors, we have stories from the hot financial messes to remarkable victories, from boards who step up to boards who are missing in action, from really bad days to the days you save somebody's life. My guest collects these stories and then figures out a way to spread them, complete with practical advice and resources galore. His most recent adventure is the second edition of Nonprofit Management 101, a complete and practical guide for leaders and professionals that he edited along with his colleague, Layla Brenner. Every nonprofit leader needs this book on her bookshelf, and I guarantee it, it's going to become dog-eared and highlighted in no time flat. But Darren is not just an author. He's deeply committed to helping those who help, and through his decades of experience, he has learned what nonprofit leaders struggle with. He's hearing from leaders in the sector about what they need to be successful, what has changed, and what has remained the same in our sector over the past decade. We could talk about the issues and advice that were raised by the 55 contributors of his book, and full disclosure, I am one of those 55. But today I thought we'd just focus on the biggest challenges and opportunities that nonprofit leaders face today. That should make for a good conversation. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. My guest today is Darian rodriguez Heyman. He's kind of this renaissance dude. He's an accomplished facilitator, fundraiser, social entrepreneur, DJ, best-selling author. I, I don't know. His, his bio goes on for days. I'm trying to pick out a couple of things. Um, he's launched a nonprofit boot camp when he was the executive director of the Craigslist Foundation. It grew to become the largest nonprofit gathering in history in just a year. That led him to this first edition of the Nonprofit Management 101 book. Um, he's also co-founded several other social impact conference series, including Social Media for Nonprofits. Um, and he is also the editor-in-chief of Blue Advocado, a practical, provocative, fun newsletter offering food for thought for nonprofits. Um, it's actually a go-to for all of us who play in the nonprofit sandbox. Um, I could go on, but I suspect some of his idea, some of his other things will crop up as we talk. Um, Darian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So um, as I understand it, you jumped from the tech space, kind of the corporate side of things in the tech space to this business that I call helping the helpers. Um, start, and you started as a founder of one of the first digital ad agencies. And I'm sort of just curious about hearing about I, so many people who are nonprofit leaders um, started out in the corporate sector like I did. Mm. And so many people in the corporate sector are so intrigued about what that transition is like, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so let's just first start with what, what, what was your why? You moved from corporate America to the, I think, to the Craigslist Foundation, if I have that right. I did, yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, you know, I was, oh, let's see, I started out university studying engineering, decided that I wanted to become a teacher, which is what my mom's profession was for many years. Um, and in the process, kind of decided I wasn't really that concerned about making money for myself or other people. Uh, and the way things unfolded, I wound up basically starting a little business with some of my college buddies. That business turned out to become one of the first digital advertising agencies and the company just exploded. Wow. Over about five years, we grew to almost over 400 people and half a billion dollars 
Um, and we sold this thing when I was 24 years old. And it wasn't, you know, a Google IPO, but for a 24-year-old that thought I was going to become a teacher, I, I wound up with a little nest egg. And <laughs> I, I thought I was going to be doing that for a while. But then when the economy collapsed around 2000, uh, it very quickly stopped being as much fun. For me, it was more of a family. We had 22 married couples come out of that company. Wow. And so when that happened, I basically went on sabbatical. I traveled the world for six six months. And while I was traveling... I reflected pretty deeply on my purpose, the work I wanted to do in the world. And I decided I wanted to devote my career to social impact and philanthropy. And so, uh, you know, once that happened, uh, you know, I started out producing fundraisers for different causes around different cultural themes and had this opportunity to basically restart Craigslist Foundation, which had existed, but was dormant. They hadn't even had a board meeting for two years. And I got brought in to sort of revitalize this thing came up with sort of a, a mission and a vision. And it was really about, you know, Craigslist is about people helping people. And in my right. mind, the foundation should be about helping people help. Right. And instead of picking one cause or organization, we should really uplift the entire sector and connect leaders to the resources that they need to be successful. And so I started that thing out of my bedroom with no funding, even though we had the Craigslist name, we didn't have any financial support. But uh, that name was gold. It opened up every door in town. I crafted this vision around the nonprofit boot camp that was kind of like Lollapalooza for nonprofits. I, think, <laughs> uh, I have a fundamental belief that there's no front door to the movement. There's no Google for good. Uh, and so most nonprofit leaders just kind of build the plane while flying it. And I wanted to create that front door. And so we did that with this one-day event. Uh, had you know as many as eight different educational tracks, 100 partners that were all capacity-building groups uh, that most... Uh, startup nonprofits didn't know about in the Bay Area. And it was really successful, as you mentioned. Uh, and what I discovered in my transition was that I was really able to use a lot of my skills from the private sector. Um, you know, I, I had a background as a sales and business development guy, and that translated directly to fundraising. I have a background as an educator that translated directly to public speaking. And I think I, I had to learn a little bit of vocabulary. There's some words that nonprofits don't use. Um, that, that for-profits do. And I also had to learn the importance of consensus-based leadership and yes. really sort of deep listening instead of just thinking that you've got all the answers and telling the world what they are. Um, and in the process of doing that, I was able to fill a gap in the nonprofit community uh, and really sort of establish my career in this world of helping people help. I, I find that... Um what you just described about consensus building and all of that is not something that corporate America trains you to do. And, not at all. And there's, there's always this discussion about, you know, how much corporate America skills would br bring to the nonprofit sector. I actually often think the reverse is true. That, um, you know, I learned how to manage people in a sort of a three-dimensional fashion because I, I, I grew to understand quite quickly that people that <laughs> I wasn't managing towards somebody's year-end bonus anymore. Um, and I, I wonder if you, you think about that. What, what, it's a little off topic, but I'm, I'm intrigued. The nonprofit sector has much to teach corporate America, don't you think? I would absolutely agree with that. And I think the idea of consensus-based leadership and servant leadership is one of the most valuable lessons. Yeah. I think also the, um, this notion that people who work, and it sounds like, uh, actually sounds like with your company too, with 22 married couples, that you created some of this, but, um, 
People come to the nonprofit sector to have a voice. They expect to have one. And I don't know that that should really be all that different. It's not necessarily a vote, but a voice. And I think that that's, that's the biggest lesson the nonprofit sector taught me is that, is that how do you actually navigate um, and successfully engage staff members in having a voice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of actually an interesting paradox because on one hand, consensus-based leadership is so critical to being a successful nonprofit leader. And on the other hand, quite frankly, I think of the nonprofit sector as fairly ego-driven. And what I mean by that is that, you know, half the, the one and a half million nonprofits in this country have budgets underneath $100,000. They're all volunteer organizations where someone has some kind of life experience, their mom gets sick or, um, you know, they have to put a pet down and they want to run out and, and kind of start a new cause. And all too often, I mean, you would never see a business plan without a competitive analysis. Correct. And the vast majority of nonprofits do not take the time to survey the landscape and figure out who's already out there serving that mission and that community and that they could maybe support instead of starting their own organization. Um, Yeah, it's really interesting. I do a fair amount of um, strategic visioning work for organizations that are sort of kind of stuck on what what they want to be, what their North Mm. Star is. And we do a lot of that landscape analysis for our clients. And as part of that, we, we sit down with the board and we say, if this organization was erased from the hard drive of society tomorrow, what gap would there be and who would fill it? Mm-hmm. And there is often really awkward silence, like mm-hmm. really awkward silence, right? And you think to yourself, "Wow, they built that whole infrastructure, right?" And um, and and they they're awkwardly silent about the fact that they know that someone else would probably be able to scoop up what they do. Yeah, I mean, I think the best way I've heard it put was I, I once had the the opportunity to hear Bill Clinton speak, and he said that you know it's key to seek first to collaborate and only then to lead. And I think in the world of social impact, it's especially critical that before we do anything, we look at who's already out there, how can we support their work or collaborate in some way. And then if we decide that what we're doing is so unique and different than what's already out there, great. At least we have a sense of the landscape and we can speak to those uh, unique characteristics as opposed to, you know, I've heard so many funders tell me that they get basically five or 10 grant applications for pretty much the same thing. And then they ask the applicants if they know about the other ones and they almost never do. And yeah. it's, it's such an interesting fragmented space that I think with a little bit of effort um, around uh, building coalitions and, and identifying collaborators, that social impact gets uh, you know, catapulted forward in a big way. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so um, tell me a little bit, tell our reader, our listeners here a little bit about um, the Nonprofit Management 101, uh, the book, and, um, and its why, and, um, and what you hope when someone, what you hope for when someone buys it, and who's, who's the avatar for the book, too, I guess I want to sure. know. Sure. So, um, you know, the book is basically the book version of that nonprofit boot camp that we were talking about. With oh, Crisis interesting. Foundation. Okay. So Wiley and Sons, the publisher, pitched me on turning the boot camp into a book. And for me, aside from the fact that I had always wanted to, to write a book and it was kind of on my bucket list, what I started to realize really quickly when I did some deep listening when I first got into the role as executive director with Craigslist Foundation was that basically there's no front door to the movement. There's no Google for good. You decide you want to save the mountain lion 
and then you just kind of go do it as opposed to having a starting point. Yeah. And so the opportunity uh, to do what we did with the boot camp and now with Nonprofit Management 101 to really try to boil the ocean and encapsulate all of the, the different aspects and disciplines of what you need to be able to do to run a successful nonprofit and not necessarily try to give people all of the answers, but mm-hmm. kind of the Pareto principle, you know, the 20% of the information that is going to drive 80% of the impact and, you know, give people an opportunity to, to learn any one of about 35 different topics uh, with about 20 or 30 minutes a pop. And then there's a resource review at the end of each chapter. So if they wanted to dive deeper and learn more, they could do that. But again, with 20 or 30 minutes, given how busy folks are, hey, it's time to develop a new website or we're launching a major donor or a foundation fundraising campaign. How do we get started? What are the most important things that I need to keep in mind to maximize impact, to avoid the pitfalls? And to be able to learn those really quickly, um, I find is, is completely transformational for most causes. And I think in general, what I've seen with most books and conferences and resources out there is there's a lot of abstract concepts and theories and strategies and philosophies. There's not nearly as much on the tactical, practical tips and tools. And personally, what I've discovered is that's what nonprofit leaders of all sizes and scales are really craving and really need. That's absolutely true. And I will say, as somebody who has is a contributor to the second edition, you were very, very clear about what you were looking for. And it you described it quite perfectly, which actually is, a, a, especially when you have contributing writers, so critical to getting what you need from each of them is a clarity of, okay, I'm imagining that an executive director is going to spend thinking about, okay, I really want to think more about leadership. And I got, you know, I got 20 or 30 minutes and I just want to, I, I want to get a, a good solid taste with a couple of actionable ideas mm-hmm. and, and right with that kind of direction, your authors, you know, they can, they can really deliver something that's of real value. Yeah. I mean, I think of the difference between the what and the so what quite often when I'm organizing conferences or books uh, is I think all too often yourself included, you have such an amazing background. You've had such an incredible story that I could listen to you for hours just talking about what you've done. But from a standpoint of what's really going to help the audience, what's more important than what you've done is what you learned along the way. Exactly. And I think all too often speakers and writers leave that stuff out. And what really matters is what have you learned that is relevant to the audience? Uh, And really focusing on that uh, is really critical, especially from a standpoint of those lessons learned, pitfalls to avoid, and tips and tools. You bet. You bet. So um, you have you did the first edition and then was it a, about 10 years later that you've done the second edition? Yep. Eight years. Eight years. Good. So um, how has the sector changed? I mean, so you have this, these interesting bookends, right? If, if you'll excuse the pun. Um, yeah. So you have the interesting bookends. What, what's, your, what's your take on sort of in that eight years, how has the sector changed if it has how so? Stronger? More challenged? What do, you, what do you see as you think about those eight years? Well, I think there's probably two big trends that I've noticed, not even counting how technology has advanced so significantly, which is critical in and of itself. But I, I think the, the two bigger trends that I've noticed, one is sort of the blurring lines and the, the you know, kind of the lack of boundaries between for-profit and non-profit. So the world of social enterprise has really picked up, especially with uh, millennials, uh, you know, kind of in their mindset. Uh, so I think that's one of them. Mm. 
Um, and in my mind, I think, um, you know, that's happened because of a couple different reasons. One was we had a financial uh, collapse for a bit there. And a lot of nonprofits started seeing some of the revenue streams dry up. And so they naturally started wondering, how do we diversify and stabilize our revenue base? And earned income was sort of thought of as a panacea for some of those organizations. Right. Um, and also, like I said, the millennials are not necessarily thinking about for-profit, nonprofit. They're thinking about cause. They're thinking about what they want to do with their life. Yep. And they can achieve that through any kind of channel, whether it's a business or a nonprofit. Very interesting. Um, uh so you, I think you said there were two trends. Did I? That, you, I did say that. And um, I'm trying to remember the second <laughs> one now. I apologize. Um, no, don't worry about it. So we'll, 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 it'll come to you. But I, I, th- I think you're, you're totally right about that, especially with regard to millennials. And I, I wanted to, to ask you, I think certainly one of the ways in which the world is sort of radically different today, it seems to me, maybe it's just more obvious or visible, um, is that, you know, here we are in, in uh, 2019, and we have this really, really polarized society. Mm. Um, I, I feel like it feels, it feels like a, a pretty angry place. Um, Very much so. And, um, and, and, I, and I think that, that, that there's a lot of energy in terms of anger. I think there's also a, a fair amount of like, uh, like hopelessness. Like, I don't, know how, I don't know how to fix this. And I'm curious about what your, your observations on, on what kind of impact that um, this environment has had on the sector. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. also I guess what, what you, th- you know, how, how leaders should be grappling with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the the other thing I was going to mention was was just because of the change in the political climate, there's increasing demands and more scant resources uh, facing nonprofits. And so yep. by definition, almost, nonprofits typically are always operating beyond the boundaries of, of their capacity mm-hmm. because there's always an infinite demand. But especially given, you know, some of the budget cuts and, and social services and things like that, it's gotten... Yep even harder. Um, and, and I think to your point, I absolutely agree that there's sort of this huge chasm that I never felt before, where at least we could empathize and understand the, the opposing viewpoint and perspective. And now I feel like the, the country and increasingly the world is getting so polarized with this us versus them mentality that it's really hard to understand how the other side is even thinking. Um, and that is really difficult. That's actually part of why I asked Van Jones to write the new introduction to the mm-hmm. book is because of that shift in society. I, I think Van is one of the people who's done, you know, he's obviously a hardcore progressive and yet, uh, you know, he has dinner with Newt Gingrich and he's yep. very actively engaged. The, the Koch brothers basically got him ousted from his job at the White House and now he partnered with them on the First Step Act. Um, so this notion of how do we partner with unlikely allies and how do we reach across and try to identify some of those points in, in common uh, is all the more critical than it was before, because I think it does restore some hope and it sends a message that even in this polarized world, collaboration is possible and we still do share some things in common with the other side. And we need to focus as much on this as we can. Um, there's also, I think, and I wonder your observation about this is, to me, I feel like the society feels like there's a, you know, um, just a real dearth of leadership. 
and that, uh, I, you know, in my work with clients and also I do a lot of work with small nonprofits in my nonprofit leadership lab, my online community, um, these, these folks give me a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't, I, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder if you think leaders, nonprofit leaders see that, that role that, that they are uniquely suited to play, especially now. You know, I think it's been interesting because this is another place where the millennials really were a game changer. Um, I used to do public speaking 15 years ago and I would talk about this leadership vacuum uh, that was so uh, top of mind for the nonprofit world where, hey, you know, in the 80s, we had 300,000 nonprofits. Now we have more than five times that. And we had 78 million baby boomers and there's only 39 million Gen Xers like myself. So we have five times as many organizations, half as many bodies. What do we do? And millennials really came to the rescue. They're the biggest generation in history. They're incredibly civically minded. And for me, this is one of the sources of hope and the silver lining is I almost think of this country as an alcoholic. And we had to hit rock bottom before we collectively realized we had a problem and we're interested in making it better. And I think that started with Obama. We might have backslid arguably recently, but the millennials as a generation recognize that it is incumbent upon them that the older folks are not going to fix these problems and save them. And they need to assume leadership roles uh, in order to bring about the world that they are envisioning. And that that world doesn't have the delineated boundaries of for-profit, non-profit, or cause versus an individual organization. Um, and that they don't really see those divides nearly as much as the generations that came before them. Um, I would argue they also don't see the boundaries or the, the divides that come with title or function in an organization. Do you see that? I do. And I also think it applies to, you know, work versus personal. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of tearing down the walls, whether it's around collaboration, like in this book, or I, you know, I, for me, it's important to have a career that I find personally fulfilling and the sort of fifties and sixties notion of I'm going to go punch a clock and sacrifice a third of my life so I can have my real life outside of that, that never had any appeal for me. And I think millennials are even more, um, you know, committed to, wanting complete integration and feeling like a whole person. Uh, that's part of how they show up in the workplace and what they demand from their employers. It's part of how they show up for causes. I've noticed in some organizations, I wonder if you've seen this as well, you've got boomers at the top mm-hmm. and um, you have millennials uh, you know, in the workforce of that organization and they don't speak the same language. They mm-hmm. don't operate the, the, the sort of the, the operating manual is completely different. Um, and, um, so I've seen a lot of tension around that. And I've also, I, I wonder if you've seen this as well. I, I feel like I've seen more larger sort of mid-sized organizations where the staff has, 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 organized where the, you know, the the largely millennials have organized because of that tension. And I Mm -hmm. I wonder if you've seen it. And I I also wonder if you've seen anyone that's navigated that successfully. Cause I think it's a, I see, I mean, I've seen a lot of organizations develop unions that didn't have them before, for example. Mm -hmm. And I just, I wonder if you've seen that trend and, and whether you think that there's a, um, it's a, it's a challenge or it's a good thing, like how to, or how as a leader, how can a leader navigate that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a balancing act because uh, I've definitely seen this trend. I've experienced it personally where I essentially had a mutiny on my hands when I was uh, an executive director. Uh-huh. And it wasn't necessarily with millennials, but I think it's emblematic of that same thing you're, you're talking about, which is I think that there's a traditional notion that okay, I'm the leader, I cut my teeth to get here and you need to do what I say, albeit maybe in somewhat of a consensus-based environment because we're running nonprofits and that it's okay for me to give you busy work and just kind of make you a, a worker bee. And millennials don't really play that game. They're, you know, we, Older people like to say they're entitled, but in, from their perspective, like they have more to give than that. Right. And so I, I think the notion of... Uh, putting them in charge and putting them in teams are two of the most important tips for success that I've come across. Um, the other thing from a nonprofit perspective is recognizing that millennials are not really that loyal to organizations. They're much more focused on causes and impact. I think that's totally uh, true. So that is a sort of a language shift. And then the final thing I would say is that they value all of their contributions equally. They're the only generation that doesn't put donating at the top of the pyramid of engagement for them, like when they share on social media and they evangelize your cause, that's the demonstration of their engagement and their commitment to the, to well, the and, cause. And they're not wrong, are they? No, they're not. I mean, there is no wrong answer of what does it mean to you to be engaged with a cause. But I think there is definitely a culture shift. There's definitely some management techniques that are really critical. And at the same time, there's a boundary to that. Because for me, maybe it's my hippie sensibilities, I don't know, but... Uh, you know, when we had that, that company I told you about, we had a woman get pregnant and move to Paris and we almost set up an office for her because, uh-huh. you know, the, the family unit was so important to me that I never wanted to lose anyone. And when I became a nonprofit executive director, I think the big mistake I made is I, I, I thought that there was really only one kind of leadership. And as I, you know, spent more time in the sector, I get to be a better and better leader. And ultimately what led me to transition out of Craigslist Foundation was a a very deep epiphany and recognition that there's actually different kinds of leadership. And, you know, for me, the image was a weightlifter where there's the, the muscles you use to do the heavy lifting to get something off the ground. And when it comes to those entrepreneurial skill sets and muscles, I'm really talented and gifted and it comes naturally to me. But by the time I had built up Craigslist over five years to a national organization with established programs and great board members, I was kind of in this managerial mode where I was trying to hold the thing over my head and I was really struggling and I was out of my comfort zone. And I realized I was trying to prove something to myself uh, around being a great leader that I didn't need to. And in the process of that, I was not the best manager. It wasn't the stuff I was well suited to. And I tried to take this consensus-based approach of basically almost organizing the coup and bringing it to the board and having the the employees speak their piece because I wanted the board to make the best decision for the organization. And in my mind, they should know about all the problems and the concerns with my leadership and they should decide what should happen. And what the board said was like, no, 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 it does not work that way. As the executive director, you need to manage the staff. And if there's a right on your hands, you need to fix it and clean it up and clean yep. house. Yep. And that was a really hard lesson for me to learn. And if I would have, uh, if I could go back in time, I would have handled that a lot more differently uh, and maybe had a little bit more of an iron hand and put up some boundaries myself instead of deferring to the board to, to do that for me. Interesting. We're, um, we're having a, a kind of a, a thoughtful, uh, rambling conversation with Darian rodriguez Heyman who is uh, my, my Renaissance man guest today. He is the 
um, author of the best-selling nonprofit Fundraising 101, and he is the editor of, I think, what is now the hottest nonprofit book on Amazon, Nonprofit Management 101. And he is also, in his not-so-spare time, the editor-in-chief of the very popular online magazine, Blue Avocado. Um, So, Darian, you talked about uh, boards. I want to talk about Mm. that for just a moment. Um, There's some people that just think that the the structure, the nonprofit structure is just flawed fundamentally, that this notion of having, you know, volunteers who serve as boards, providing oversight and governance to a staff – is 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 somehow this is a fundamentally flawed and it's just it's it should we should really rethink the model and i i wonder if if you think that or if you think that there's really gold in them there are board hills um so let's start with let's start there yeah i mean i would even take it a step further and say it's kind of the secret sauce that make nonprofits able to do what they do so i think having volunteer boards is absolutely critical and, and instrumental to our success and our impact. I think the problem is that, again, because there's not sort of this standard uh, approach to kind of learning what you're doing and studying before you do it, yep. and almost all of us are building the plane while flying it, uh, there's a lot of things that once you've had some experience or once you've worked across organizations, you can see these commonalities. And, uh, you know, boards is one of the stickiest ones uh, next to fundraising, it's the number one reason why executive directors leave their jobs is yep. frustrations around their boards. And I think one of the biggest issues is people don't recognize the idea of a nonprofit life cycle. And what I mean by that is it's very common when someone you know, gets that spear through the chest moment, they want to run out and start a nonprofit, that they basically just ask their friends and family to be those three board members that the IRS requires, you what bet. I would call an in-name only board, right? They're just kind of rubber stamping and they're there for the paperwork. I call it the I I call it the FOF board, Friends of the Founders. Okay, exactly. And so, you know, if you're lucky to kind of break through that ceiling and get to the point where you start to have a small budget, you hire professional staff, etc., you get into the idea of a working board where the board essentially becomes an extension of the staff because you don't have enough funding to properly staff the organization. And that's sort of a different skill set and a different, you know, set of responsibilities. And where I find the single biggest challenge is when you go from being 500K a year plus, and now all of a sudden you have the staff to really be able to do the work and your needs of the board evolve. And what you really need is more strategic leadership and more fundraising support. That that transition is really challenging, uh, especially if not executed properly. And the good news is there's kind of a formula and it's not that complicated but most nonprofits don't know it because they're building the plane while flying. Um, you want to sh- you want to share the formula? Yeah, I'm happy to. I think it's about creating a culture of engagement and of accountability, quite frankly, and that starts with being really intentional about what does the board look like that you want to create. I think, in general, I would say the umbrella I would put all of this under is it's absolutely critical to recognize and to value and to respect the contribution of the board members that got you to this point. No kidding. And the overarching message is, thank you so much because of your support and your leadership, you got us to the next level. And now as we move forward, our needs as an organization are going to evolve. And let's have a conversation, not a mandate, 
about what that looks like and what the role of the board is moving forward. Number one is let's talk about what our ideal board composition should look like. And using a simple board matrix, just a spreadsheet with, you know, here are the members, here are the characteristics bucketed as uh, expertise and capacity, uh, bucketed as diversity, uh, and bucketed as connections, you know, is a really simple formula. And what it does is it basically creates an asset map. It helps the board have a conversation about what do we have and what do we need. And the end result of implementing that tool, uh, which doesn't take very long and generally isn't that contentious, is you get you gain consensus on behalf of the board and the staff of here are the top three things we need in board members. So that instead of being out in the community and just generally saying, anybody want to join our board? You know, when you're meeting with some well-connected person, you can say, hey, do you happen to know any Latina lawyers in Oakland with good foundation connections? Absolutely. Right? Right. And the likelihood of success when you know what you're looking for goes up exponentially, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, that's step one of three is the board matrix and clarifying your, your recruitment goals. The second piece is really creating a very clear sense of what exactly it means to be a board member. And for me, that is best embodied in a board member agreement, basically a job description that is consistent for every member of the board. It's a document that each and every one of them should sign along with the chair. It should only be one or two pages. Uh, It should be written in very plain English with bullet points of this is exactly what's required of me. And it shouldn't be subjective. It shouldn't say, I will attend, I'll make a good faith effort to attend all board meetings. It should right. say, I'll attend 75% of them, yep. right? So that it's a very clear yes or no, did you do your job? And there's obviously a conversation that goes into creating those responsibilities. And that has to be handled very sensitively. It cannot really be driven by the, by the staff. It has to be driven either ideally by a consultant or by the board itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but really clarifying those expectations, which include expectations around fundraising, both personal contributions, supporting fundraising, hopefully not mandating that they make ask, but at least open up doors and be part of the fundraising process. Here, here. Um, but putting that on a couple pieces of paper so that it's not buried in a 500-page board orientation packet with the bylaws and uh, you know the past minutes, and it's a standalone document that you use to really clarify exactly what it means to be a board member. And then you use that, you reflect back on it at the end of each year to say, okay, did I do each of these things? And if the answer to any of them is no, it facilitates a much more graceful conversation about, well, you know, is this going to be an ongoing issue? In which case, should we look at transitioning you to a different role, like our donor circle? Or was this a one-off because you had a health issue or lost your job, et cetera? Exactly. So to me, that's the second linchpin of the puzzle. And then the third piece of the puzzle, if you're going to recruit these amazing board members, you're going to clarify what's expected of them, is the third piece is you have to make really good use of their time. And my mantra for board engagement is low touch, high value. How can I, as a very busy executive or what have you, have a transformative impact on your organization with three hours a month of my time? And part of that is basically... Uh, you know, optimizing the board meetings themselves. And what I find, uh, go ahead. No, no, I, I'm oh. just shaking my head. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think board yes. meetings, I think board meetings are the single biggest missed opportunity in a nonprofit organization. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because we make the same mistake with the conferences we organize in the sector, which is we bring together these amazing leaders. We talk at them for two or three days and then we send them home <laughs> and the real actions in the hallway. 
right? And when it, in the context of a board meeting, you know, we generally spend 80 to 90% of our board meetings in monologue, giving reports and updates instead of in dialogue, strategic discussions, brainstorming, coming up with ideas of how to solve problems that the staff don't know how to solve. And that's the juice. That's the real value of the board. And oh, guess what? If you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. Once the board has a stronger sense of ownership over the work, they're much more likely to get involved with fundraising. And so the the tool for sort of transforming board meetings from 20% mono, uh, dialogue to 80% is a consent calendar, right? Which is basically a three-part sandwich. It starts out with an organizational dashboard, a just simple one-page heads-up display with colored indicators against a bunch of key performance indicators that have been pre-identified. The meat of the sandwich are the executive summaries. Anything that would have been on the agenda that has the word report or update gets condensed down to no more than two paragraphs. Um, and then the final piece is the minutes from the prior meeting with all of the commitments and the votes highlighted so they jump off the page and you try to keep it to two or three pages total for the minutes. And that sandwich gets distributed with the agenda ahead of time. But you also start out your meeting in silence as you hand out the hard copies. You wait for people to read these documents. If they did before, they might have forgotten or maybe they didn't read them. When all their heads go up, you ask if there's any clarifying questions. You ask if there's anything in there that's too meaty that merits discussion or action, in which case it gets removed from the docket. And otherwise, it gets approved. And it's kind of like the matrix, how he learns Kung Fu in 10 seconds. Once that <laughs> document is approved, everyone in the board has gotten their board Kung Fu, and they're ready to get into dialogue and discussion and problem solving. Well, what I love about that is the notion that, you know, how many times do you hear executive directors say, well, I didn't really write a very interesting board report because I know that um, I know that the board's really not going to read it. Mm-hmm. And so the notion that you actually have, you sit quietly and read something, um, it actually removes that, which I think is really interesting. The other thing, um, I, it's funny, you said that it starts with this kind of sandwich that you describe. And mm. I, I think it, it actually starts with something really quite fundamental. It starts with trust and respect for your board members that they're actually bringing something to the table. Mm-hmm. And um, if you don't see them that way, they won't behave that way. You'll have a lot of attrition. Um, you mentioned earlier that you brought, you were an executive director that sort of brought bad news to your board. You know, here's what's not going well. Mm-hmm. And until such time as executive directors change their mindset about um, this notion that <clears throat> board members don't know enough to be of value and can't they just go raise money and go and leave me alone to do the real work? Um, you know, I, I do think that executive directors really need to look in the, uh, really need to look in the, in the mirror around that. Yeah. It's incumbent upon us to properly engage our board. Yeah, I mean, that's, absolutely. that's the bottom line. Yeah. So let's, um, let's just switch gears in our final couple of minutes together and talk mm. a little bit about um, blue avocado. Um, you sure. are the editor in chief of this uh, online publication, and I would guess that most of our listeners know about it. But um, why don't you why don't you do the the sort of the spiel about Blue Avocado and kind of what um, what is it about it that is unique? What gap does it fill? Yeah, I think um, you know Jan Masaoka started it uh, over a decade ago. It's published by the Nonprofit Insurance Alliance, but basically it's an online magazine for nonprofits. A lot of it is kind of like a FUBU approach for us, by us. So there's a lot of first-person, you know, tales from the trenches, from actual leaders who have learned lessons along the way. 
um, very much has that tactical, practical tips and tools focus that is sort of my uh, fundamental focus and, and belief of what the sector needs more of. Uh, there's a bit of humor in there. There's a little irreverence. We love showcasing the advice that people might not typically find elsewhere, like how to fire a bad board member. Yep. Um, so we like to tackle some of those topics. Um, because the Nonprofit Insurance Alliance publishes it, there's always some content in there around risk management and liability, which is something a lot of nonprofits uh, you know, mistakenly ignore. But we cover fundraising, boards, finance, uh, millennial engagement, uh, all kinds of topics with a really practical focus. And the, it's a free newsletter that comes out every other month. Uh, and all of the articles are archived on the website, which we just redesigned at blueavocado.org. Yeah, it's really, the web, the website is awfully nice. And I, I do think that Blue Avocado and, uh, Voulet's, uh, blog and probably mine are the, are places where you will actually find joy and humor. And, uh, it's a, it, to me, that's, you know, um, that's the secret sauce is that the, the, what distinguishes a good leader from a great leader is the, the great leaders really understand and acknowledge the joy that comes with service. Yeah. And I think it goes back to this thing we were talking about tearing down the walls with millennials, which yep. is like people want to show up as their whole self. And yep. part of that is being able to laugh or cry or, uh, you know, have fun and sort of be, you know, find grace in the struggle. So Blue Avocado has been around a long time. And I just was just sort of curious, is there, is there a recent post that has really um, resonated for people in a big way? I was just kind of, kind of curious about sort of most popular post or one that just really sort of rang out for people. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's kind of the, the standard. So the fundraising content always does really well. We've done some articles on crowdfunding, peer-to-peer funding, um, foundations, individual donors. Those are always, uh, you know, nonprofit leaders can't get enough of fundraising content. A lot of board content and how to, how to really optimally engage board members. Um, that stuff's always popular. We actually started... Um, with Derek Feldman, who wrote the chapter on generations and millennial engagement in the book, he actually started becoming a regular contributor. So he has something called um, Nonprofit Nexus, which is about uh, really engaging the next generation of supporters and millennials. That's um, fantastic. That's been, uh, that's been great. Uh, we have a post on lobbying and advocacy in the new issue that uh, is wonderful. And there's also this Ask Rita column, uh, which basically looks at insurance and risk management and liability and, you know, how do I handle a whistleblower or what do I do if I have a slip and fall at my nonprofit? Yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's one of the go-tos in the sector for, uh, for nonprofit leaders. And, um, um, so I, I'm, as we wrap up here, I, um, just a, a quick question. I'm a, let's say I'm a brand new executive director and I'm having a cup of coffee with you and I've never mm. been an executive director before. Uh, give me a piece of advice that, that, I, that I should plan on carrying with me that'll serve me well. I would say, like I said earlier, seek first to collaborate and only then to lead. So with you know, the, the two um, questions I would encourage you to ask whenever you do anything in the social impact space, number one is, who else is out there working on a similar cause that I could potentially support or partner with? Uh, and, and number two is sort of a golden question that I try to ask in every group meeting, every time I'm conceiving of a new program or event or project like the book, is what does success look like? And really kind of designing with the end in mind 
so that we get as much clarity as possible about what exactly are we trying to achieve here? What would that look like? And then kind of reverse engineer the best pathway to get there. I love that. Um, so you've finished the book. The book is out and very successful. And you don't seem like a guy that has much grass grow under his feet. Um, but do you have a, anything new coming down the pipe that you're, uh, that you're working on and excited about? Yeah, I'm doing a bunch of really great stuff. It's all mission-led. So aside from the book in Blue Avocado, I run a small corporate foundation for Numi Organic Tea. Um, they're turning 20 this year. They're the biggest organic and fair trade tea company. And so we're organizing our first ever gala at the end of the month. So I've been working hard on that and uh, doing some great education work here in the Bay Area. I also uh, do some work in the gender space. Uh, there's a field within impact investing called gender lens investing, getting more money into women-led businesses. Uh, and so I, I help to co-produce the global summit on that topic in London every 18 months. Um, we did one last year that was incredible. So we're planning our next one. And then I have a pretty active public speaking, coaching and consulting practice. So I'm doing some work in Asia now with AVPN. I just emceed their uh, global summit in Singapore last month. Uh, and I'm going to be continuing to work with them. And uh, the biggest consulting project I've, I've done so far is coming to a, a close with the Trust for Public Land. Mm. Uh, they've been around for almost 50 years and they've never had a national strategic plan. And so they hired me with a big team to come in and really help to work with this large grassroots organization to help them create a cohesive and consistent vision across the entire organization with work in 18 states uh, to come up with sort of a national plan of how to bring in more funding, but also advance their impact. Well, um, okay. So that's a small list. (laughs) Um, Well, it certainly seems that the nonprofit sector is mighty lucky to have a champion in you. And I just wanted to say thanks for sharing your insights and for dedicating so much of your time and energy to um, fueling the nonprofit sector in the ways that you do. I think it's a real gift. And um, I know I speak for all my listeners when I say that it it is um, so appreciated. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure and an honor. And I want to thank you for having me. I also want to thank all of your listeners, not just on behalf of myself, but on behalf of the millions of people that they serve every day. It's really an honor to be here. And I hope some of what I shared was helpful. I have every confidence that everything that you shared was helpful. And um, so with that, we're going to take our leave. And um, uh, and I'm just going to I'm going to echo what Darian said, as as I often do, which is it is a it is a privilege to um, share these interviews with all of you. Um, If I could rant about one thing in the sector, and I could rant about many things, it would be about the um, lack of professional development resources uh, that are made available to nonprofit leaders. And I, it is thanks to folks like Darian and uh, myself, and uh, uh, you know, quite a number of other folks who really are dedicated to providing um, either low cost or no cost resources to the vast array of nonprofit leaders who are doing the most remarkable work. is. So um, thank you for listening and thank you for the work you do. We'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.